This morning we are continuing on in our series through the book of John. Uh, we've said this a couple of times as, as we've been moving through the book of John, that uh, as uh, this book was written, it's not just a collection of stories that John recalled. Uh, it's stories that are being told with a purpose and with an end in mind. And at the end of John, he actually tells us what that purpose is. It's to inspire faith in Jesus. And so this morning, what we're going to be looking at are a couple of chapters, uh, specifically John chapters 7 and 8. Uh, two weeks out, we'll look at John chapter 9. But John chapter 7 through 9 tell us the story of Jesus at his last Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles before his death and resurrection. Um, we saw early on as we started looking at the book of John that in the first half of the book of John, what often happens is that Jesus steps into a specific festival or a specific uh, Jewish tradition and sort of interacts with that tradition in a new way and shows how everything ultimately points to him. And so that's some of what we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll dive into that. Um, so let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning, God. Thank you um, for the opportunity to worship and sing. God, thank you for um, the work that you are doing in the city of Augusta through Oaks Ministries. God, I pray that your, um, pray your blessings upon them as they continue to minister and work. And God, this morning, in the remainder of the time that we have, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds to draw us to you. Um, God, that your Holy Spirit would be at work that we would meet with you in this place, that we would be changed because of that meeting. God, I pray that you would um, use me simply as an instrument of your grace and mercy this morning, an instrument of the gospel, that you would be glorified and there would be great joy for your people. And God, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So like I said, the chapters that we're going to be looking at tell us the story of Jesus at his last Feast of Booths. Uh, the Feast of Booths is also known as uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, or maybe as the Ingathering Feast, or you might see it on a modern calendar as Sukkot. And Sukkot was the last of the fall festivals. It was a week-long event held at the end of the agricultural year when the grapes and the olives were being harvested. And uh, that would have been sometime in September or October. It was intended to be one of the pilgr pilgrimage feasts where people would travel to the temple in Jerusalem, uh, it was a time to thank God for all of the preceding year's provision, to pray for a good rainy season that, that was about to start, uh, hopefully from October through March, the upcoming year. But primarily, though, this feast was designed and instituted to remember the wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan, where God's people lived in the desert, and they lived in booths or tents or tabernacles. And this was their time to remember God's provision of his people all those years before. During the time of this feast, um, each Israelite family was supposed to construct a booth or a sukkah and live in it for a week. These booths were temporary shelters with, a, with thatched roofs or palm fronds and other plants used to decorate them. Those things kind of changed over time. But in keeping with Sukkot's purpose to remember the wilderness journey, 
um, part of what occurred during this festival was a pretty dramatic water-pouring ceremony um, that came to be part of the feast over time to remember when the Lord gave Israel water in the desert. There are a couple of stories you can look up about that in Exodus 17, Numbers chapter 20. But as a part of that ceremony, the officiating priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam and pour it into a basin near the altar in the temple. Um, If you remember in John chapter 5, from just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus healed a paralyzed man at the same pool where the water would be drawn from. And actually, over the course of chapter 7 and 8, that healing is referenced. It's a source of conflict in some ways. That's a lot of quick background info, but I think that background info is actually pretty important to understanding what's happening and some of the things that Jesus says in this passage and really to, full, to, to feel the full weight of what's going on. So the way I want to deal with the passage this morning, um, because there's a lot, right? We're looking at all of chapters 7 and 8. I'm not going to read all of the verses from chapters 7 and 8. What I want to do to begin with is just at a very high level, talk through the course of events that happen over those two chapters um, and sort of explain how they tie together and what's happening. And then we will dive into very specific parts of this story um, once we get through that like big picture look at what's going on. But I kind of want to look at these two chapters, chapters in seven and eight, like a six-act play or a six-scene play. Scene one opens in John chapter seven, verses one through 13. Jesus is at home in Galilee. It's time for the Feast of Booths. Jesus says that he's not traveling south to Jerusalem for the feast because he knows that certain religious leaders are out to kill him. But his brothers urge him to go anyway. If you go back and look at verses three through five of chapter seven, they don't really seem to have Jesus's best interest at heart for whatever reason. And we eventually do see that Jesus goes to the feast, but he does so privately. He doesn't do it in a public fashion. Scene two starts in verse 14 of chapter seven and goes through verse 36. It's halfway through the feast. Jesus goes to the temple and he begins to teach. We don't really know what he was saying exactly. John doesn't tell us that. John just says he's at the temple teaching. But whatever it is that Jesus is saying, it caused a lot of questions to be asked about Jesus. Um, if, If you look through these two chapters, there's this constant, who is he? Where did he come from? What's he's about? That had already started before this chapter even, but it it plays a big role here, right? And in the typical fashion we see throughout the book of John, Jesus is trying to communicate something to them about who he is, where he's from, that he is God, but there's there's just a misunderstanding. They don't quite connect on what Jesus is saying. And over the course of scene two here, um, there are basically three basic lines of question about Jesus that come up. In verse 15, there are questions about where Jesus received his education. Like, how are you able to teach this way? How are you able to say the things that you were saying? And the answer that Jesus provides, essentially, is that his education comes from God the Father. In verses 25 through 27, there are questions about where Jesus is from. And the line of thought is, we know where this guy is from. 
Uh, he can't possibly be the Messiah because he's from Galilee and no, no good thing comes from Galilee. There's no prophet from Galilee. Um, they already know where he's from. It can't possibly be Jesus. But Jesus actually says, I'm from the Father. I'm God. I'm from heaven. Verse 35, the question gets asked about where Jesus is going in response to some of the things that he has been saying. And his answer is, well, eventually, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going back to heaven to be with God. Scene three, verses 37 through 52. um, And I'm just going to read this real quick. I'm going to read this section of of, um, these verses John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52, because we get a good summary of everything that's gone on in chapter 7 up until this point. But John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, but as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You see the back and forth, right? It's pretty clear. Is he uh, the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? Uh, Is he who he says he is? Is he not who he says he is? Should we believe him? Should we not? Um, Like there's just constant back and forth about who Jesus is, trying to uh, grasp who Jesus is and what he's about. Uh, Interestingly enough, Nicodemus shows back up here in the passage. If you remember him back from John chapter three, he shows up again here, John chapter seven. We're going to come back to verses 37 through 39 in a moment when we zoom in a bit because those verses are the heart of chapter 7 and they're quite striking, I think. But essentially what chapter 7 is and what chapter uh, and what the verses that I just read for us summarize is this. The crowds and authorities are getting increasingly interested in asking who Jesus is and what he's about and they want to figure it out. Is he or isn't he who we think he is? And their reaction is either to see him as a threat or to see Jesus as someone who can do what he says in verse 37 and quench their thirst. Scene four starts. um, It's called 753 or 8.1 through 8.11. In in chapter eight, um, things begin to take take a darker turn 
This chapter opens with some of those religious leaders wanting to stone to death a woman that has been uh, supposedly caught in adultery. And it ends with those religious leaders wanting to stone Jesus. This passage specifically in those first 11 verses, we see the grace and mercy of Jesus on full display. There's actually a lot of debate about whether this account that happens at the beginning of chapter 8, which I will come back to in a moment as well. Um, there's a lot of debate about whether this account actually belongs at this point in the story. Your Bibles might even have a footnote that says this part of the passage was not found in the earliest manuscripts of scriptures. While that's true, the authenticity and antiqui antiquity of this set of verses is not really in question. It was often included at other places in those early manuscripts. Um, but here's the reason why I think it serves a purpose in chapter 8. As you move forward in chapter 8, we see Jesus accusing um, the religious leaders of willfully misunderstanding him, of failing to grasp what he's saying, of wanting to kill him, and all because they are following the dictates of their father, the devil. Jesus actually says that to them. Chapter 8 contains some of the harshest things Jesus has ever recorded as saying in the scriptures. But the reason for those things is on full display in this story, like I said, that I'll return to. This story provides an example of Jesus coming to face to face with the real problems that lie at the heart of these religious leaders, right? The problem that they misunderstand the heart and purposes of God. We won't understand chapter eight if we think of these religious leaders as simply uh, being interested bystanders trying to make sense of a curious teacher. If we read it like that, then it seems like Jesus might be irrationally angry and dismissive. In reality, Jesus' anger is directed at religious leaders who actually don't have the best interest of their people at heart. His anger is directed at hypocritical leaders serving to extend their influence and sway at the expense of others. And this story helps to illustrate why his anger is so intense. Moving on, scene five happens in verses 12 through 30 of chapter eight. There is just this continuing open conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders that ultimately culminates in scene six, verses 31 through 59, as that conflict moves to debate and that debate moves to them wanting to stone Jesus. And I'll just read John 8, 48 through 59 so that we get a glimpse of this open conflict and debate. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died 
and the prophets died, why, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. At this point in the story, there's no doubt who Jesus is, right? Jesus just drew the line in the sand and said, I'm God. There's no more debate at this point. Jesus is claiming to be God, the Messiah. And in doing so, the religious leaders now want to kill him, right? By the end of chapter 8, Jesus' identity is the one sent from God, the Messiah, God himself. This is front and center. And at this point, we begin to see the story in John actually move toward Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the overall flow of chapter 7 and 8. And like I said, I kind of want to now just take a moment and sort of zoom in on a few different snippets from these six scenes to help us see something specific about Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe all over again. Um, Like I said, if John's purpose for us in us having this book, if the reason that John wrote the book to the original hearers was to help them develop faith in Jesus, then part of what we want to do as we move through the book of John is for us to see Jesus all over again in a new way. Maybe see Jesus for the first time, but maybe see something anew again and let that draw us to Jesus. So the first thing that I want to look at is I want to go back to John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Let me read them again. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Just a bit ago, I mentioned this elaborate water ritual that would happen over the course of this feast. It would happen daily. It would happen on the last day of the feast, the the great day um, that we just read about here. But this is what this elaborate water ritual would look like. Um, Like I said, it was to commemorate God's provision of water for his people during the exodus from Egypt. There's already been a lot of talk about water in John, right, as we've read through it. But the ritual went something like this. Each morning um, at the temple, as the daily sacrifices were being prepared, the high priest, accompanied by a large procession of worshipers, would walk from the temple to the pool of Siloam. And when he got there, the priest would fill a golden vessel with water from the pool, and then he and all of those worshipers would trek back to the temple. Some people say that along the way, the worshipers would be singing these psalms from Psalm 113 to 
Psalm 118. They would get back to the temple, to the brazen altar. The priest would pour the water into a specific basin designed for that water that would then flow out over the altar as a water offering. Some scholars think that as this was happening, um, Psalm 18 would be sung, Psalm 18 would be repeated over and over, and the people would hear the repetition of these words from that psalm, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Right, so with that image in mind, water pouring out, this pointer back to Psalm 18, that the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. The goodness of God is being remembered and proclaimed. And in the midst of all that, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's striking, right? The juxtaposition of that imagery, this water offering being given to remember God's provision so long ago. And Jesus is saying, we're remembering God's goodness from long ago, but I am offering you God's goodness right now. Right? It's this universal offer. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's a striking image. It also ties directly back to Isaiah chapter 55, which begins this way. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's this universal free offer to come and have your quench thirst by the water that Jesus is offering. And it's undoubtedly, right, the message might be missed because all along, Jesus and the hearers, they're just not quite joining up on what he's saying. They're not quite getting it. But it's a beautiful image, right? It shows up over and over and over throughout the Bible, throughout the book of John. It's a simple image, but it's universal. We all understand what it means to be thirsty and how a cool glass of water can quench that thirst. We also understand that a cool glass of sand would not have the same effect. Jesus' offer of satisfaction is for everyone who needs it. And the reality of the fact is that we all do. We all have different thirsts that we try to satisfy in different ways, but Jesus is offering something better. And the way that so often happens throughout the book of John Jesus is taking this image from this festival and reinterpreting it all in light of himself and what he has to offer. This water is something that you can actually have now. It's something good for you. It's something that can change you now. And not only that, not only is it available to you, it changes you in, in a unique way. N.T. Wright, when talking about these verses, says, living water is available to everyone and new creation will flow out of everyone who drinks. Jesus satisfies thirst in a way that becomes an overflow of abundance. The beautiful poetry of the gospel, the beautiful poetry of how the good news moves forward is that it takes lack and turns it into abundance. 
It takes death and turns it into life. It takes empty cups and turns them into overflowing vessels. It takes darkness and turns it to light. It takes ashes to beauty. It gives life to dry bones. The living water that Jesus offers, the living water of the Holy Spirit is not measured based on how much capacity I have. It is intentionally more than enough. And now that I possess it, what I once lacked, I am now called to give to others. Living water is available to everyone and new creation flows out of everyone who drinks. Which leads us to the second snippet, John chapter eight, verses two through 11. I'll read it. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him. They might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, bent down and rode with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. As I already mentioned, this set of verses was not included in some of the earliest manuscripts of John in this place. It was included in other places, uh, often in those manuscripts. Uh, many people, though, argue that it wasn't even John that wrote it, that it might have been Luke. But like I said, it's not that the authenticity of these verses is in question. It's whether or not it actually was intended to be at this point in the story. But like I mentioned earlier, here's the argument for it being included right here. It serves to show why Jesus got so angry with the religious leaders in Jerusalem as we move on through this chapter. Look at what's happening these religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus and they are doing so at the expense of the woman involved. They don't care one bit about her or the heart of the Old Testament law. They only care about their power and influence and the threat to those things that is Jesus. The double standard around women and sexuality is on full display in this passage the man, is, um, the man that was involved in the supposed act of adultery is not present. He's been given a free pass, but she's being paraded out. And they're trying to trap Jesus. They're expecting Jesus to have to fall in line with them and agree with them or to oppose them in such a way that there is a reason for them to point out his opposition to the Old Testament law of Moses. 
Instead, what Jesus does is Jesus reminds them of the Old Testament practice that the original accusers of someone caught in this sort of act, the original accusers who actually have enough verified witnesses to prove the transgressions, well, they are the ones that have to throw the first stones. In doing this, Jesus lays bare their own wicked hearts. Jesus lays bare the weight of their sin. They too are thirsty for something better. They leave. And Jesus tells the woman to go, but to leave her sin behind. Right, what's on full display here is that these religious leaders in Jerusalem did not have hearts and minds overflowing with grace and mercy and forgiveness. If you remember back to John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, what happens when we come to Jesus is that there is this overflow of abundance of living water and grace and mercy. If drinking the water that Jesus provides turns you into someone that rivers of living water flow out of, well, these, river, well, these leaders had rivers of death flowing from them. Right? When we come to Jesus, when we understand the heart of God, we understand God's purposes. We did it. It's different. When we come to Jesus with our sins and shortcomings laid bare, what we get is grace and forgiveness and mercy and a brand new start, not condemnation and death. As a community, we've been praying the Lord's prayer together as a part of our missional community practices. And there's this part of the Lord's prayer that says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, right? The invitation into the kingdom of God is an invitation into a kingdom of forgiveness, not a kingdom of condemnation. All the religious leaders were bringing was condemnation and death. But Jesus has something better to offer, if you move on in John chapter 8, you can hear some of the incredibly harsh words of Jesus. John chapter 8, verses 42 through 47, I'll read them. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Right in this passage and after, Jesus tells these religious leaders that they do not get it, that they are not of God. What they're doing, what they're propagating, what they are about does not come from God. He tells them that they're children of the devil that they are liars, that they are murderers, people who are incapable of hearing what he has to say. He goes all 
end. If you know me well, I like to joke that my base emotion is angry. Like, so this part of scripture, like, I really connect with. Um, He didn't go all in on the woman accused of adultery. He went all in on the religious leaders who claimed to speak for God, but who were actually blinded by their own thirst for power and influence. In some ways, this should give us pause as believers. This should give me pause because we should be asking ourselves, am I overflowing with the abundance of living water that brings to fruition God's grace and mercy and forgiveness? Or am I overflowing with something rotten and putrid? You see, the righteousness of these religious leaders was not true righteousness. It was righteousness built on human wisdom and human strength and human power, but not a righteousness fed by the living waters. The reality of righteousness is that true righteousness only ever begins when we come to the end of ourselves and grab onto Jesus instead. Church, it's easy for us to point at these religious leaders in this story and to judge them as something awful. It's really easy for me because like I said, I connect with Jesus' anger here. Yeah, these people are terrible. But what I'm asking you to consider, what I'm asking myself to consider is whether or not we are just like them. What is the abundance that we are producing? Is it grace and mercy and forgiveness? If we've been invited into this kingdom of forgiveness, Is that what we're giving? Is that what we're about? Are we people of grace and mercy, forgiveness? Right, church, I believe this whole passage serves to show us that Jesus is offering living water. Sometimes we recognize our need for it. But sometimes we keep trying to quench that thirst with sand. And so the call from this passage this morning is pretty simple. It's to run to Jesus. It's to recognize his offer of grace and mercy and to examine our lives to find ways in which we are not giving grace and mercy and forgiveness so that we can turn around and run to Jesus all over again for that refreshing water that Jesus offers freely to anyone in need. Church, if we were to look at this passage and say, what do we see about Jesus in this passage? We see Jesus offering living water and the quenching of our thirst. We see Jesus literally offering grace and mercy to someone that nobody else wanted to offer grace and mercy to. We see Jesus calling these religious leaders to account for the hardness of their hearts and the rottenness that was being produced instead of the abundance of living water that happens when we come face to face with Jesus, when we recognize him for who he is and what he has to offer. Church, the offer for us this morning, the the call for us this morning is simply this, to come to Jesus to have those quenched thirst, whether it's for the first time, whether it's all over again, the call is to run to Jesus. We're gonna enter into a time of response during our time of response, our call is to continue to run to Jesus. We're gonna have an opportunity to continue to worship by singing with the band in a second. 
you have an opportunity to worship by giving. There's a giving basket in the back. Some of us give in other ways other than giving on Sunday morning. This is an opportunity for us to recognize that our giving is actually an act of worship. Uh, You have an opportunity and time now to sit where you are and reflect on maybe what we've heard this morning. If you need to pray, please take some time and pray and meet with Jesus in this place. If you need to pray with another person, grab them and do that. And as well, we'll have the opportunity to take communion. Every Sunday at Redemption, we take communion in order to remember the goodness of Christ and what he's done for us and to proclaim to one another that we believe it. So in a moment, I would invite you to come down the aisle here, take the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice. And so remember um, the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And as we remember, um, just recognize that we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it, that it's true. And so if this morning, if you can remember and proclaim, then I invite you to come and take communion Uh, and to continue to respond and worship in that way. I'm gonna pray for us and we'll continue on. God, thank you for this reminder from your word this morning. God, that you have offered us something good, refreshing, cleansing, wonderful. God, you've offered it to us in such a way that our lack becomes abundant. Our need becomes an overflow. God, for those of us in this room this morning, pray that you would make us deeply aware of the thirsts that we have. God, I pray that you would lead us, that you would call us to run to Jesus to have those thirsts quenched. God, in turn, I pray that you would make us rivers of living water who overflow with an abundance of grace and mercy and forgiveness. I pray that we would be kingdom people marked by grace and mercy and forgiveness. God, I pray now as we continue our time of response, Jesus would be lifted high in this place. We'd be drawn to you. God, that you would be glorified. There'd be tremendous joy in this place. God, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, our savior. Amen.